0: We, we worship a God who is from everlasting to everlasting. We are on this planet for three score years and ten, or maybe a bit longer, maybe a bit less. And uh, this week we have an election. And I decided that I would um, do what I'm not supposed to do this morning, They say that you're never supposed to talk about politics or religion. I used to be a geography and economics teacher. I've read a lot about geography and economics and about political systems around the world. I've lived in four different countries with completely different political systems. The last country I lived in was Azerbaijan <clears throat> and if you look at society in Azerbaijan you could sort of equate it to a, a field in the middle of the jungle where there were elephants, wolves and sheep. Now the elephants were the, the people that had the power and the authority and the strength in that society and they would stand where the grass was and they would have as much to eat as they wanted, but also there were sheep, but the sheep had to be wary of the wolves because there was a lot of corruption in that country, and if someone could take advantage of someone else, they would, and so you had to be very careful how you lived, how you spent your money, what decisions you made, because there were wolves that were very quick to pounce and take advantage of you and to devour you. When we lived on, in Borneo, in Brunei, the Sultan of Brunei was the richest man in the world. This was before Bill Gates took his place. And he used to get most of his wealth from the oil industry. And he would give money to members of his family, to his friends, and there was supposed to be a trickle-down effect where the money would work its way down through the system. When I lived on Niuei Island, Niuei Island receives about 22 million dollars of aid from New Zealand every year, and when we lived there it was about 13 million. And how successful you were, what your quality of life was, depended on whether you had a job distributing certain commodity or whether you worked for the government, but the bulk of the people, they lived in villages, they had their bush gardens, And they worked hard. They got some extra money through catching fish and selling their fish. And so there are many many different systems operating in the world and our own perspective comes from our own experience. Now I grew up in a in a poor family. My dad had six sons. He was a minister in the day when they used to pay you peanuts to keep you humble. And I remember when I played football, my mother couldn't afford to pay for football socks for the team that I I was playing for, and so my mum knitted my socks. Imagine how embarrassing it was to be the only person in the team with knitted socks. And what's more, I had to play with plastic football boots. So I've, uh, I've uh, grown up understanding what it's like not to have much. But you know, the poor they learn a lot in life. They have to be very careful with their decisions. They learn to be wise. We can have sort of cultural constructs where we look down our noses at poor people and we judge them because we think that they're not as good as we are. It's very easy to feel that we're superior and look down on people that are struggling in life. You know, God loves us. And we were worshipping God and singing about his kingdom. And his kingdom is going to be unbelievable. There will be no sickness or pain, no poverty, no difficulty. And he wants his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. And we can see God's character demonstrated in the way he has managed the affairs of men over the years the children of Israel were captive in Egypt they were slaves of the Egyptians and God wanted to set them free there are many people in the world today who are slaves they're in bondage they're not free and so when God decided that he was going to set his people free all of those barriers were removed a powerful Egyptian army that kept them as slaves. The river, the Red Sea, that blocked their progress. All of those things were removed so that the people of Israel could come out of that oppression. And in a similar way today, God can open doors. He can change things in our lives, in our country, to take us out of oppression and into a good place. And when Jesus came to earth, the very first declaration he gave was that he has come to bring good news to the poor. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and poverty of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free. That was the very first First message of Jesus Christ. That is his life statement. That's what Jesus wants to do in our world day. But you know, if we look back through history, we see all types of oppression. We had emperors of Rome like Nero and Caesar that killed thousands of Christians. Just for being a Christian, you came into his firing line and he annihilated you, slaughtered thousands of Christians, persecuted them, pursued them all over Europe in that day and age. And then there were times when political rulers joined up with religious rulers. There were the Huguenots in France in 1572 and they were Protestant Christians but they were in a disagreement with the Catholic Church and so the Pope teamed up with Charles IX and they slaughtered estimates say between 5,000 and 30,000 Christians just because they wouldn't yield to the laws of the king or the rules of the Catholic religion. And so throughout history, we've seen all forms of oppression where people have dominated others. But, you know, God's laws are above human laws. God wants mankind, humankind, to live according to His ways. And so when the people left Europe and established the colonies in the United States, the founding fathers of those colonies, they decided that they wanted to base their laws on God's law. They wanted a second chance. This was going to be a new country where everyone lived according to God's rules, according to God's ways, and God would bless that country, and God has blessed that country. But then Charles Darwin came along with his theories on the evolution of the species. And he said, look, God, there's no creator God. There's not a God that made us. We have, evol- have evolved. There was this collision in space and things got into a certain order and things have progressed since that point in time. And because he missed God and because that country was based on God's law, 10 years after Darwin gave his theories, they appointed a new professor at Harvard Law School who said that law also had to evolve. That law couldn't be stagnant. We couldn't take the laws that God gave to those Israelite people way back in Exodus. So when God took the Israelites out of Egypt and he put them in the wilderness on their way to Canaan, he wrote the Ten Commandments in tablets of stone. And they were put in a tabernacle in the center of the camp. And they were central to the beliefs of those people. Those people believed and lived according to those laws. And it was those same laws that the American founders had said, we want to base our society on these laws. But then the evolutionists said, law evolves. We can't base our laws on laws as old as that because man is changing. And so we need more modern laws that fit into our situation. And so they initiated the rule of law. And that basically said that if a judge looks at a situation and makes a ruling on that thing, That becomes the new standard for future judges and for future legislation within our country. And so once he introduced that, we saw mankind leaving the laws of God and adopting the laws of man. And what happens when that takes place is indicated in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and 25. Can we have that on the screen? It says, For the anger of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshipped and served the things God created instead of the Creator Himself who was worthy of eternal praise. That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. So God says, look, I made you. I know how you're supposed to live. I know how I want you to live. Follow my laws and I will bless you But man comes along and says, no, no, your laws are old-fashioned. You didn't even exist. We have our own laws. We are going to impose our own laws. And so we worship ourselves. We make our own laws. And when that happens, God says, well, if you want me, I'm here. But if you don't want me, then you can go your own way but you're going to have to face the consequences. And so the same thing is happening in New Zealand. And a few years ago, they they passed that rule that it is now illegal for children to smack their children, uh, for parents to smack their children. Even though the Bible says, spare the rod, spoil the child. And so here was a biblical rule that said, look, if you want to be effective parents, discipline your children in a fair and a loving way. But Sue Bradford brought this bill before Parliament and they had a poll and they vote and they looked at what the public thought, 80%, 87% of people in New Zealand opposed that bill, but they still pushed that bill through. And sure, there were cases where children were abused by violent parents. But that bill has not stopped violence against children today. And it has taken away a good tool that is useful for good parents to train up their children in an appropriate way. And so we have thrown out God's way and we have accepted... Other systems, and God wants us to return to His way of living. You know, there's two primary economic systems in the world one is socialism or communism, and that basically says that everything that a country owns needs to be shared evenly among the people. Unfortunately in most communist countries the people that administer power have taken a lot of the wealth. The other system was from Adam Smith and it is the free market economy which say, which is capitalism, which says you have a choice to get involved in any business that you, you want to, that is positive and good for society. You can make money through having a particular skill and using that skill. Now there's some jobs that no one wants, so someone gets paid a bit more to clean out septic tanks or to crawl under houses and do plumbing or whatever. Other go- other jobs are highly specialized like a, a doctor where you need to take seven years to train and, and so some skills are worth more than others. And so people have the opportunity to progress, to move from this job to this job, to see this economic opportunity and to invest in that field. And if that system is allowed to operate properly, it can mean that everyone in society is productive and the needs of society are met. There was a time when communism wanted to take over the world and today there are only three remaining, four remaining communist countries. There's Vietnam, there's China, there's Cuba and there's North Korea. Communism has failed as an economic ideology and even in China now they are really practicing capitalism. I read a book called China Awakes, and it was saying, look, China is getting free from the bondage of the past, what is the best model for them? And there's still communist authorities, but they're implementing capitalistic programs to enable the the economy to flourish the way it should. An economics teacher decided that he wanted to show his class how, communism, how socialism didn't work. He said, right, what we're going to do in this class is, from now on, when I give you an assignment and you complete the assignment and hand your work in, I'm going to give everyone in the class the same grade, based on the average of all of those papers. So he gives them the assignment and some people work hard and they get an A. Others work very casually, don't put a lot of time into it, and they get a D. He looks at all those grades and he says, all right, the average is B, you've all got a B. Then he gives the next assignment. And those people that worked hard last time, they thought, well, gosh, why should I work my butt off of these other guys are going to get the same mark as me. So they didn't work as hard. And those guys that did very little work the the first time, they did even less. So he marked all the assignments and the average grade was D. Then he did it a third time. People did even less. The average grade was F. Everyone failed. And so if you take from rich to give to the poor, if you divide the wealth of the poor, of the rich, it takes away the incentive to work hard and to make money. And that's what socialism does, it tries to make everyone equal, but it takes away that opportunity to get ahead. People will work hard if they feel it's going to be worth their while and there is going to be... A good result. One thing we have to always keep in mind though is that God loves the poor. And in other societies, they are closer communities and families look after each other. Like in Singapore, there is no social welfare. And so young people look after their elderly parents. If someone in that family loses their job, then it's in the family's interest to get that person a job. If he doesn't have a job, then he's going to be the guy that washes the windows and cleans the cars and cleans the house and does the cooking until he gets a job. And so we have, a, we have systems in our country that are, unique to us that are quite different to what happens in other countries and we actually have quite a few cultural blockages in New Zealand. I've seen a few in my travels and I want to outline one or two of them to you today. You may not agree with me but this is my observation. When New Zealanders came over here, most of us came from Britain and we were the poor landless class in Britain. So we were given land over here and we were so excited to be poor people that were suddenly given a piece of land and we were able to build our own house on our own patch of land. And those initial settlers were given a quarter of an acre of land, that's a big section, and you're able to have your veggie garden and uh, as much space in your plot of land to do whatever you wanted. For the last two years, Helen and I were living in an apartment, in two different apartments. The first apartment had eight apartments in it, and it would take up about the space of a normal section here in Topol. It was four stories high, and there were two apartments on each level. Our second apartment was 12 storeys high and there were 10 apartments at each level, 120 apartments in that one building that would have taken up about a block of a normal patch of land here in total. In New Zealand we are still obsessed with, with owning our own house. Whereas throughout the world, particularly when there are high population densities, people live in apartments. Apartment living is great. You don't have to mow the lawns every couple of weeks, weed the garden, do all those extra things. People like being indoors now and they still have big decks and outdoor areas and nice views and all those sorts of things. In our apartment, it had a supermarket underneath it as well as a a gymnasium that you could go to, to, to train in. So here we've got a housing crisis in New Zealand. And the main reason why we have a housing crisis is because we're not building apartments like other parts of the world that are far more efficient, that mean that Auckland's not expanding outwards, causing a massive traffic problem, taking over fertile farmland with a concrete jungle. That's a blind spot. We don't see the value of apartments. They're much cheaper to build. And the other thing is, many other overseas countries bring in cheap foreign labor to help with building. Now, they still pay those foreign workers twice as much as they would get at home, but New Zealand has a minimum wage. And if we bring in foreign workers over here, we insist that we pay them the minimum wage, which means that we're not getting advantage of Thai workers who can work cheaply to build roads and apartments. We have to pay them four times as much as as they would get at home. And we also have laws that say we want people that work for us to actually be able to live here permanently. Whereas most workers from Southeast Asia who are highly skilled and very good at building infrastructure and housing and apartments, uh, they come in for a period of time. They, uh, They live in a work camp, they're looked after, they save all their money, and when they go home, they bless their family with all sorts of monetary treasures that enable them to get ahead in their own country. So we have a law that says egalitarian, equal opportunity, everyone's to be treated the same. But there are people in the world that have nothing. And we can give them way, way more than they have ever had before. And we can give them a quality of life and skills and train them and help them. And so, there's other things like even you know, in this city now, people are saying, look, tourism is booming. The only problem with this place is that, people, that tourists only stay for one night. What can we do to help tourists to stay for longer? And you go to Rotorua and you see Mount Nongata and at the top of Mount Nongata you've got this beautiful restaurant, you've got a gondola that goes up, you've got a luge that goes down, you've got a bungee facility, and when tourist ships arrive in Tauranga, instead of staying and looking at Tauranga, they put them on buses and they take them to Rotorua so they can look at the Maori culture and they can go up on Mount Ngongata. And sometimes we have a cultural blind spot that says, we can't do something like that. In they have a zip line which is sort of like a, a flying fox that goes through the forest. So it's a beautiful native forest and people can climb a tree, put this harness on and then go through the forest to another tree and then another tree. And so they are appreciating New Zealand's beautiful environment but it's a tourist activity and it's creating employment and it's helping people. And you know, God is a creative God. He created the world. He can give us creative ideas. And sometimes we have to be open to new ideas. Maybe sometime in the future, if it was the Maori people that developed Mount Nongata, why can't we develop Mount Tohara in a similar sort of way? And at the same time, provide employment opportunities and ways of generating revenue for our town. But at the same time, we have to show care and love and consideration for people who are poor. There will always be people that slip through the net, and we as Christians have an obligation to care for people like that. And so, we have to look out for people. We've got to be there for people. But you know, it says in Thessalonians, if a man will not work, so he shall not eat. And so, employment is a key priority for every government. The worst thing is for someone to leave high school and not to be able to get a job because it's at that age and stage that they are developing their own philosophy of life and we want people to be productive. We want people to learn how to spend money and to save money and to plan their future. And so from a political perspective, employment for school leavers is very very important and so we have to have systems where we encourage people to get involved and to gain expertise and skills and to be able to be successful in their lives well I guess we're coming to a close and um, so we, we all have to cast our votes next Saturday don't we And I was thinking, what would a country look like if we returned to God's ways? And I've put a list of some things on the screen there. If people were honest and in employment, then they could pay their debts. Instead of having TV and media and computer isn't it incredible how the Pornography is trying to get into the heads of everyone and computers will lead you, will try and lead you to click on something that's going to give you an experience that is not healthy. And there's all this stuff that's legitimate and legal that will pull people down a negative road. But there's a lot of stuff, positive stuff, godly stuff that we struggle to get out there to people that need it. There'd be lower divorce, stronger families, reduction in crime, less people in prison, an increase in work, both quality of work and output. We'd have a higher sense of destiny for our country. We would have those creative ideas that God gives us. And we would be happier, peaceful and prosperous. So let's pray for this election. Let's pray that people that know God and love God and want to see God's ways honoured in this nation are elected into office. Let's vote for people that are wise and moral, righteous, open, wanting the best for our nation. Let's pray. Lord, there's just um, so much happening in this world at the moment. And Lord, we do pray, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we would love to be in your kingdom and one day we will be in glory. But Lord, you have come that we might have life, life in all its fullness. You have come to give us joy and to give us peace. And Lord, we do pray for our nation. We pray for those in authority, that you will give them wisdom. Lord, we pray for the poor and the needy, those people that are really struggling in life. Lord, that we can find a way to help them to survive and do well, to flourish. And so Lord, as we make our choice, on Saturday, Lord, I pray that the government of your choosing, the government who honors you the most, the people who are close to you will be elected, and that Lord, ultimately, this country will be a God-honoring country where you are able to do a work amongst us. In Jesus' name, amen.